I love you, Lord, for your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hand. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. Today I'm going to be talking about God's character. We've talked about this before. God is a person. And I say that to people, and they go, what? He's a spirit. Well, he's a spirit who is a person. Personhood isn't dependent upon you know whether you have flesh or not. God has a personality, doesn't he? God has characteristics, right? God is able to love. God is able to show emotion. God has values. That's a person, right? Now, of course, a lot of people are, you know, resisting the whole notion of personhood, you know, that we get from the Trinity. But if you think about it, that description of personhood doesn't make any sense. But God certainly is a person. It doesn't matter if he's a spirit, he's a person. And so when we talk about God, we want to get to know God. You can't know a non-person, can you? You can't have a relationship with a non-person. So God is a person. He is knowable. He's reciprocal. So God is knowable. God is reciprocal. God will respond to you. If you ask God in prayer for something, he will answer you. God is happy with us. God is angry with us. God is compassionate with us. So we need to think of God in this regard. God is a person. And one of the great aspects of God's personhood is his mercy and compassion. And that's what we are going to talk about today. God's mercy and compassion. Go to Exodus chapter 33. You know, the fact that you can have a conversation with God shows he's a person, right? He's a person. And uh, who better to read about a conversation than Moses? Moses had plenty of awesome conversations with God. Um, Moses is one of the greats in the Old Testament. So Exodus chapter 33, uh, verse 12, it says, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Now think about that. Isn't that awesome? So Moses is saying to God, look, we don't want to go forth without you. And if you're not going to be with us, how are we going to be distinguished from anybody else? I wish more churches would think that way, right? It really is an honest question. It's a desire that God go with us. That's how it is with our, our fellowship. What distinguishes our fellowship from every other, you know, organization throughout the world is because God is with us. You know, and I'm not excluding churches, but other churches. But what I am saying is that the thing that sets us apart should be the Holy Spirit of God, that God should be with us. 
Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you ask, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Isn't that beautiful? So when you're in the midst of explaining or showing his glory to Moses, the first thing he talks about is his mercy and compassion. Isn't that wonderful? He didn't say, I will show you my wrath and my judgment. He says, I'll show you my compassion and my mercy. That's the first thing he talks about. Isn't that wonderful? I love it. Go to Exodus chapter 34, and in verse 4 it says, And he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Isn't that something? So the point here is this, that God is a God of mercy, a God of compassion, but he is a God of judgment. And so you'll see this interplay throughout Scripture between judgment and mercy. Judgment and mercy. Uh, in fact, we'll see it here. Go to James chapter 2. James 2. And look in verse 12. It says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that awesome? So this idea that, that uh, this, this extended idea that God is merciful and he expects us, his people, to be merciful as well in our judgments. That judgment is tempered with mercy. Judgment is tempered with mercy. I don't know about you, but I find it very easy to be judgmental, critical, condemning. I find it very easy. Now, there are different personalities. That's my personality. I can point that finger and give somebody a hairy eyeball and and just let them have it. But that's not my God. That's not how my God works. That he has judgment, but it's always tempered with mercy. So I have to temper my judgment with mercy as well. That's very important. Very important. And I love that last line there. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So you have these two aspects of God's character. You have judgment and you have mercy. Now, of course, if you talk to the unbeliever, they'll talk about the Christian or the Judean God as being a moral monster, right? That he is a retributive God and that he hands down scathing punishments for, you know, trivial sins. That's just not our God. Our God is long-suffering, patient, our God is merciful, and we'll see that. The unbeliever would have us believe that God is a heavenly tyrant who abuses his children, and that's just not the case. It's not the case at all. God is constantly talked about in the scriptures of uh, his loving kindness. Um, the Old Testament is filled 
with God's mercy and compassion. I mean, do a word study on those words. It's amazing how many hits you get. It's crazy. So let's first look at God's judgment, since we're going to be talking about that. Go to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. Romans 2, and in verse 1, so it says here, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the exact same thing, right? So this is Paul, and he's writing to the Romans. And he's saying, look, you human beings who like to set yourselves up as judges of other people, do you not realize that your judgment is flawed? That you are a flawed judge, that you are condemning others, and yet you have sin in your life. It goes on and it says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So God's judgment is true. Man's judgment is flawed. It's flawed. Okay, and he sets that standard right off the bat. Look in verse six. It says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he gives eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress on every human being who does evil, first to the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So this is the dispassionate judgment of God, right? That everybody gets judged by the same standard, okay? Men like to show favoritism in dispensing judgment. God does not, okay? I like that. I like that clarity, don't you? He goes on to say, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So this is God's judgment. It's pretty clear. So why judgment? Why judgment? Well, if you think about it from a mathematical point of view, it's a natural corollary. We remember that from geometry class, corollaries. It's an extension of a theorem, right? You have a theorem and you have a corollary, which is an extension of that. All right. So the the natural corollary is that if there is a standard, there also has to be a determination when made when the standard is not met. Okay, what does that mean? That means that if the sky is blue, it's not red, <laughs> right? If the sky is blue, it's not red. So it differentiates between right and wrong. If you have a standard, the standard is if something is this, then it can't be that. If you say it's that, you're wrong. If you say it's this, you're right. Is that difficult? No, of course not. So God is a God of standard. He sets standards. He sets moral standards. He sets spiritual standards. There's a right application of the standard, and then there is the wrong application of the standard. It's that simple, right? So now, in the scriptures, as we just read, God also associates blessings with adhering to the right standard and consequences for deviating from that standard. Okay? Makes perfect sense, right? If God wants to encourage the one and discourage the other, he's going to associate blessings and cursings. We see this throughout God's word. 
Okay? Doesn't make God a moral monster. Doesn't make God a child abuser. It makes God a God of standard. Okay? So when you do wrong, according to God's judgment, you are expecting judgment. Right? That's, that's it, right? So where does mercy fall in with that? Go to Psalm. Psalm 18. It's the 18th Psalm. And for those of you who don't know it, a psalm is a song. It would be equally correct for me to say the 18th song, right? Psalm 18, look in verse 24. It says, The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight, right? To the faithful, you will show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you will show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You have, or you save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. So there's what's called retribution, right? Retribution. Retribution is your reward for what you've done, right? God is a retributive God. If you've done right, you get blessed. That's your retribution. If you've done wrong, you get punishment. Okay, are we clear on that? Now, mercy is the withholding of merited judgment, that you have judgment coming to you, and God says, yeah, but I love this little guy or this little gal so much, and I'm going to withhold merited judgment, which I think is cool, right? You've got it coming to you, but God says, no, I'm going to withhold it. I'm going to withhold it. I think about Acts chapter 17, where it says that he's talking to the Athenians, and Uh, Paul is, and he says, in the past, you would build your idols of silver and gold, he said, and and he goes on, he says, in the past, God, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So in the past, when God was overlooking things, that's mercy. That's mercy. God could have throttled them for it, and he didn't. God extends mercy. He recognizes that we are, you know, that our vision is sometimes impaired. We see through a glass darkly, don't we? God understands that we are frail, and he understands our frame. He understands that we are dust. So there's this ongoing thing, this ongoing struggle between judgment and mercy for the people of God. Now, I'll throw a a wrinkle in there. Satan is always unmerciful, always harsh, always cruel. Do you understand that? The uh, amazing thing about Satan is he first entices a person into his into sin, and then he uses that same sin to burden and oppress that person. I thought about Jesus confronting the uh, Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not be, are not willing to lift one finger to move them. So there are churches out there who Get off on judgment. Get off on condemnation. That's not who we are at all, because that's not who God is, right? Go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9. There is a an appropriate time for a stern confrontation, let me tell you. But it has always got to be done out of heart of love, a heart of love. There are people who enjoy being the one to issue condemnation. That's not how we are. Matthew 9, look at verse 9. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And this is our Matthew, right? He wrote the 
Gospel of Matthew. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. I love it. I love it. So here's Jesus eating with the down-and-outers, right? When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners, quote-unquote? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, don't you just love that answer? I love that answer. I get goosebumps every time I hear that. When people have sin in their lives, they are morally and spiritually sick. That's a different way of seeing things than the world will teach you, right? Especially in the political climate we find ourselves in today in this country. Everybody who doesn't agree with me is evil. And I've been known to say that myself, but we need to... We need to take the higher road, I heard today in Manifestations. Uh, verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Isn't that wonderful? That's our job, is we're out there calling the sinners to repentance. And, and by the way, what is he saying here? Well, the righteous there, that should have quotes around it, Right. When he said, I have not come to call the quote-unquote righteous, but the sinners to repentance, because we're all sinners, aren't we? It's just the quote-unquote righteous don't realize that they're sinners. And I think that's an important point here. The Pharisees here were ready to ostracize the sinner, right? To kick him out of their church. You know, that quote where Jesus says, I desire you know, mercy, not sacrifice, that comes from Hosea 6.6, 6, where he says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I love that. That's a beautiful quote. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, and look in verse 1. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Isn't it amazing how religion will make people petty? I mean, trivial-minded, incredible. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he, was, he and his companions were hungry? He entered into the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. So here David was, in the Old Testament, breaking the law, but he was doing it for a good reason. You know, it's interesting. I was reading the other day about Saul and when he went to war uh, with the Philistines, and he made this stupid edict where he said, every person who is fighting has got to fast. And if he breaks the fast, he will die. Well, what a dumb rule, huh? And that was a rule he laid on the Israelites that they're out there fighting. They needed food to sustain them, and they couldn't eat because of this nonsensical edict from Saul. And then, day, or then Jonathan comes along, and Jonathan's hungry. And Jonathan hadn't heard the edict. Jonathan went and found some honey and ate it. And his father was ready to execute him. I mean, it just blows the mind, you know, the extent to which a religious mind will go. Just nonsense. Here, they're giving him a hard time for eating because they were hungry. Verse 5, or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent, right? They desecrate the day by eating the sacrifice. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. 
If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Isn't that beautiful? And he later says, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And this comes from the mindset, the religious mindset of this wrathful, indignant God looking for a chance to, you know, remind us of how wrathful he is. And that's not God's heart at all. That is not God's heart. When God has to exercise his wrath, it's with a reluctance. Jesus here is confronting the heart of condemnation and retribution. He's condemning this religious glee of finding fault. And we all have it, don't we? I turn into the biggest Pharisee you will ever know when I'm driving down the road in my car. (laughs) And we all have to recognize that there are those things that provoke that within us. And that is the fallen nature of man. That's our fallen nature. So we have to put on the mind of Christ, don't we? We have to deal with it. Okay, Micah chapter 6, look in verse 6. It says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Now listen to this, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, doesn't that give you goosebumps? It does me. That's what God is looking for. He doesn't want a bunch of religiosity. He wants hearts that are right before him. He wants hearts that emulate him, right? It's so easy to be wrathful and judgmental. It's so easy, but God wants something different. Matthew chapter 7. Notice how much time we're spending in Matthew. I think Matthew, as a person, truly appreciated that mercy, didn't he? Matthew was a publican. He was a tax collector. He was collecting taxes from his own people. And so basically he was, you know, an extension of the Roman tyranny and people hated him for it. And then he, he got mercy. He got mercy from God and from Christ. So you you tend to see a lot of this mercy in Matthew. I mean, it is holy, holy writ, but certainly Matthew is the author. Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, I want to make a point here. A lot of times people use this verse wrongly, right? Judge not, lest you be judged. So whenever you say something like, well, homosexuality is wrong. Oh, don't judge me. Uh, I'm not judging you. God's word is judging you. Do you understand the difference there? When it says here, do not judge or you too will be judged, it's saying essentially, do not condemn or place yourself as a moral superior to someone else. Does that make sense to you? That's not what we're supposed to do. That is contrary to God's heart. We're supposed to be showing mercy. Verse 2, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank hanging out of your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye 
when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Did it say not to remove the speck from your brother's eye? No, it says to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But you won't see clearly to take that speck out of your brother's eye unless you do it with mercy, unless you do it with humbleness. Go to, well, I'll read it to you. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus said that uh, among the Beatitudes on Mount Olive. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. A few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus, our high priest. Remember that? Jesus, our high priest. So let's, uh, we're going to read a little bit here about this high priest and what makes him such a great high priest. Look in verse 14. It says, therefore, since you have a great high priest, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. That's a theme, by the way, through the entire book of Hebrews, is holding firmly to the faith we profess. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I love that. In our time of need, when do you need mercy the most? You know, I've seen that in my own life. There are there have been some dark, dark days for me. I have been overwhelmed with my own sinfulness. And it's at that time that I deserved God's anger more than ever before. And what did I get? I got his mercy. And that's that's the point here, that we go to God, we go to Christ to get mercy in times of the most need, when we most do not deserve it. Go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, look in verse 31. It says, do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are who uh, are good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. I love it. So in other words, God is saying to us that he wants us to remain in step with him, that we are an extension of his character, of who he is. When we are harsh and cruel and wrathful, when we withhold our mercy from other people, we are not in step with God. We are in step with Satan, right? Matthew 9, we're just about done. Matthew 9, look at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and sickness. Now, we, we of course, are the good news of the resurrected Christ. It's a different gospel. Okay, this is good news of the kingdom. Uh, we are in a different administration, but the principles here are absolutely the same. Absolutely the same, if not more. When he saw the crowds, what happened? He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Um, I like the King James because the King James says he was moved with compassion. You know, the Bible talks about the your bowels of compassion, which sounds a little strange to somebody who's not used to the Bible, but that there is a movement, this idea of being moved to, to compassion, that it's not something that you say, okay, now is the time to be compassionate, right? That compassion is something that you have in your heart and it's an involuntary response that you see people who are downtrodden. You see people who are suffering. You see that and you are moved with it. Okay. Does that make sense to everybody? I, I think we need more of that in this world. No doubt about it. It's not contrived. You can tr contrive anything to death, right? This, this isn't that in, in this walk of the spirit. We're learning, but it's not. It's not my little, you know, code book that, you know, this is how I respond to every, you know, the, to this situation. You know, it's, it's not like that. It's that it's in you and it's drawn out of you by the circumstances. Power of the renewed mind that, you know, circumstances don't control me. You can overdo that, that you want to be that person who is moved by the circumstance, that the circumstance affects you that way. Okay, I love this, too, because what was the purpose of Jesus's ministry? It was to make known the invisible God, that Jesus fleshed out who God was, right? Jesus was God's son, his agent, and he lived out who God was in the flesh. Great. I love that. So he fleshed out God's character. You got to see God's character in a living, breathing person. And what did you get from Jesus time and time and time again? Compassion and mercy. Compassion and mercy. Matthew 18. This is a parable that Jesus told. I think it's just, it's one of my real go-to parables. It's really something. Matthew 18, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants as he began the settlement a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Yeah, pretty harsh. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, showed him a little compassion, canceled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a lot less than what he owed, you know, his master. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his, or fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will repay you. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. 
Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. Is that an appropriate term for that servant? Yes, he is absolutely wicked. He said, you canceled, uh, I canceled all the debts of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Okay, isn't this something? This is the point that, you know, I've been making throughout that as God forgives us and shows mercy to us, we show mercy and forgiveness to other people. It's when you fail to acknowledge God's mercy to you, that you will become unmerciful and cruel. And I tell you, you know, I mentioned it earlier in this teaching, we're seeing cruelty and harshness and unmercifulness and vindictiveness on a level never seen in this country before. And it is the wrath of Satan. I mean, that's exactly what it is. People are so convic full of conviction in their causes that they are willing to kill for it. And uh, and the thing is, is that for Christians in that environment, what do we tend to do? We tend to, you know, become like that, you know, to respond to that. You know, if you're in an environment of somebody who's critical, what happens to you? You become critical. If they're self-righteous, you tend to pick that up. If we're in a, in a world full of vindictiveness and hatred and cruelty, we can't afford to be otherwise. We have to keep our thoughts on things above, not on things of this world. We have to look up. We have to respond to who God is, not who man is, right? Jesus was loving and merciful. When he's hanging on the cross, what is he doing? He's forgiving. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He did not allow himself to be caught up in responding to their hatred and, and emulation. That's how we have to be. As the world becomes more vindictive, the church should become a, be becoming more merciful. Does that make sense, everybody? It doesn't seem to make sense from a from a worldly standpoint, right? But it's it makes sense from a godly standpoint. That is the church. You know, I I'm I've told you before, I, I like to read history. And what does the church do? You know, whenever there was a problem, you know, back in the Middle Ages, what did they do? They got on their horse, got their shield, and went off and killed people in the Crusades. <laughs> I mean, there is a time for, you know, war, certainly, but this wasn't that. The Crusades were pretty horrible. Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. We had it coming to us, right? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. 
And this not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that wonderful? That's mercy. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and God gave us eternal life. I think that's pretty awesome. Okay, so let me uh, finish with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, that we can be a merciful people, a loving people, an honest people, and that, Father, we leave the judgment up to you. I thank you, Father, for clarity of heart, clarity of mind. In your Son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. Huzzah!